Nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. My name is Amy Noyakis, founder and president of the Anthemus Group and the CEO and founder of Archer Gray. I began my career in Wall Street and spent most of my time in communities surrounded fairly exclusively by men. I was few and far between. There were not that many of us on the trading floor. Finding the strength and the ability to kind of carve your own path was a big defining moment for me. And in following that path and being female, I think I got noticed. And I got noticed because I was doing things a little differently. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal, helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Amy Niakis is the co-founder and president of Anthemis Group, a digital financial services investment and advisory firm. She's also founder and chair of Archer Gray, a media production and finance company. She discusses the challenges of being a woman in the male-driven culture of business and why she thinks women should never limit themselves to a single career. So, Amy, you were a Cantor Fitzgerald employee. Would you tell us your story about where you were on September 11th? Oh, yeah. Um, well, I worked for Cantor Fitzgerald on the 105th floor of the World Trade Center, Tower One. And on September 11th, I overslept. I was home kind of normally got to the office between 7.30 and 8, depending on what was going on that day. And for some reason, alarm went off that day and just couldn't get out of bed. Um, I was actually awake, but I was not, just kind of felt something keeping me in bed and I just didn't move. And then kind of jumped out of bed, recognized I was going to be late, grabbed everything, ran off and, and then was on my way to the office when the first plane hit. And so when you got there, was it kind of chaos? You know, I think I kind of hightailed it out of there before I really recognized what happened. I'd had um, some phone calls from actually uh, a friend who was at the Goldman Building very locally to the Trade Center and then one that was happened to be at the Goldman Building in London who heard about it fairly instantaneously because they were both on the phone with my colleagues at Canner when the plane hit. So it was before anybody recognized what happened. I was actually getting a phone call almost instantaneously while I was watching what looked just like a bunch of smoke and, and such. And so I just... I was in a cab and I asked the cabbie to just turn around and get out of there. My instinct was to just get far, as far away as possible. And then I just started making phone calls to people inside and trying to figure out what was going on. As we all know, sadly, Cantor lost hundreds of employees on 9-11. And I know you were very instrumental in keeping that firm going after 9-11 because they were in such bad shape with losing so many people. I'm wondering, how were you able to focus and get work done and take on new roles when mm. you had lost so many friends and yeah, coworkers? We lost 658 of our colleagues that day. I often and reflect on 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 kind of how and why as a collective unit we did what we did next which was sort of go to spaces that were comfortable for each of us i think in many ways when you have that much trauma that that level of of impact on your your psyche it's often quite reasonable to expect that you'd go to a place where you were comfortable. And for many of us, that was going back to work. And so I think that action and that need to focus on something other than what was the reality of what was happening around us really helped us come together pretty organically without much of a plan as to what would happen next. And, and in those early minutes, days, and certainly even weeks, it was a lot of sort of free thinking kind of sense of personal and, and, and professional responsibility to just do what you could do 
be relevant and to be helpful and to be useful. I think all of us who are in and around New York um, on September 11th remember that feeling of wanting to be useful. And for all of us, I think we felt that our usefulness came in in just focusing down on work and, and getting there. And it was not without its challenges. We made some mistakes, and I think we would all admit that that it was a tough time for all of us, both personally and professionally. But I think we all can be pretty proud of, of the ultimate outcome and the commitment that we made to the families of our lost colleagues and to the commitment we made to the the sort of future of the firm. There was probably a good easily year, maybe for some of us two years of delayed response time from the actual trauma because I think we were so busy and so intense. But but it wasn't difficult to go back to work because it felt the only place we could add value at that moment when so much had disappeared. What did 9-11 teach you about life or did it affect your view? Yeah. Well, for sure it, it reminded me, because I think I've always had this view, but but it certainly reminded me in a pretty um, impactful and, and, and aggressive way that we can't take anything for granted and that things can change in an instant. Um, we need to be prepared to, to try to take the most we can out of every day and to recognize those around us, um, whether they're our work colleagues or our family or our friends, and value them and, and properly give to them of our, of our sort of hearts and minds wherever we can. That was certainly a, a clear reminder for me. From a workplace perspective, it helped helped me cement this appreciation for building and being part of teams that matter. And and when I say matter, I don't mean necessarily have some higher purpose. But when you're looking at kind of the workforce in general, and you know, at all different levels, our participation in the workforce requires us to spend a lot of time with people, making a conscious effort to know who you're surrounding yourself with, how you're spending your time and who you're spending your time with from a values perspective, from a from a, a collaboration perspective. It's important. You know, I mean, it's for, for many of us, it's north of 50, 60 hours a week. And that's a big chunk of life. I've heard you say that being a woman in finance has hurt your career. (laughs) Have I said that? Have I said hurt my career? Let's see. It has definitely influenced my career. Yeah, I mean, I I think I've always felt a bit of a master of my own destiny, right? So so I don't think I would blame or or point to any one person or or thing that would suggest anything that did or didn't go in the direction that, you know, was meant to go in. But I will tell you that the experience has evolved and, and certainly evolved in my mind of, of how I recognized what was happening to me when it was happening to me, right? So in the early 90s, when I began my career in Wall Street and, and spent most of my time in, in communities surrounded fairly exclusively by men, I was, you know, a few and far between. There were not that many of us on the trading floor during that time. And, and for those of us who were there, we didn't really have significant mentors who looked like us, who acted like us, or who, who even had an experience that we were having in the senior ranks. And so we, we really did have to sort of forge our own individual paths. I have never, and I, you know, I say this with, with a bit of a great assault, but I, I don't think I've ever felt that any of the issues, the gender issues on Wall Street had had a lot to do with some underlying significant misogyny. And I think we've all appreciated recently that some of the issues that are happening do, in fact, have to do with that. Um, but for me and for my career, it was really uh, about this sort of group think. And the more you're involved in a community where every single person there has similar experiences, looks the same, acts the same, has very different uh, or very similar comfort zones, if you're the outsider, you can feel pretty outside pretty quickly. Finding the strength and the ability to kind of shove into those groups, carve your own path, was a big defining moment for me, right? Because I could have just evolved and and sort of played the game, so to speak, and and just picked up the same interests led by my own experiences, which maybe would have been exactly like their experiences. But but really, for me, it, it felt more authentic to just follow my own path. And in following that path, which at the time meant that I was doing my own thing, thinking a little differently 
and being female, because that's who I am, at least part of who I am, I think I got noticed. And I got noticed because I was doing things a little differently. Um, and I think in some ways it helped my career because I stood out as different and therefore was able to use that to my advantage. How do you get that courage to do something differently when you are in that group think <laughs> mentality? Probably in the earliest days, it was less courage and more a, a bit of naivete. And this sort of realization that, well, isn't this, aren't you, aren't you supposed to, you, you got hired to do a job, aren't you supposed to do that job? And then maybe being a little naive to think that you have to think or, or say things in a particular way. I had my moments of saying something that maybe wasn't the most popular thing. But I think because I never had anybody that I could connect with and I, and I had a very separate existence with my Wall Street and my professional life than was happening in my personal life. I didn't have a ton of friends that were from my work life that I took into my private life. And, and I think at that point, it was really easy to kind of compartmentalize it. What, you know, became the kind of driving force for me was, was just this ability to recognize that I had to be true to myself. And, and I came to Wall Street for a specific reason. And I needed to be true to those values and to those drivers. If that meant that I was going to be sidelined or told off, then I'd have to deal with the repercussions of that and just kind of, you know, I'm tough. And, and I think being a bit of having a bit of grit and resilience in that environment served me well. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash code assistant. IBM. Let's create. The future of everything from the Wall Street Journal. Technology and superstorms. Digital money. What's next for retail? and fighting superbugs. Join me, Jennifer Strong, as I examine how science and technology are influencing our lives today, tomorrow, and beyond. The Future of Everything from The Wall Street Journal, Season 2. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from The Wall Street Journal. Women may enter the finance field, but many end up leaving in their 30s. I'm just wondering what you think is going on there. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a fact that isn't unique to sort of modern time. It's been happening for forever. And and I think one of the things that we have looked at at Anthemus quite a bit is as we help companies move from industrial to a digital age, we have to be conscious that it's not just the products and the services and the, and the markets that are changing. It's the people and the way we do things. Generationally, the desire and, and need to kind of create companies that can satisfy and, and keep motivated a different way of doing things. And so when you look at traditional Wall Street firms and you think back to kind of when they were started and how they were started, I mean, let's be realistic here. They were 300 plus years of institutional know-how that was a business that was started by white men for white men. So it's actually not surprising that after hundreds of years of building those cultures, they haven't evolved much from there. What's promising is this recognition that people want to change and that people want things to be different and, and need them to be different. And the motivations might vary, right? And, and maybe the, the reason to make it happen is because it is just good business. And we all know that it is. But I think that the challenge is that it's not going to happen very quickly. And we've seen over the last, you know, even 10 or 20 years worth of efforts from Wall Street firms that, that shifting these kind of paradigms of thousands and thousands of employees worldwide into kind of a new way of thinking is really difficult. Where I'm really focused and, and where 
our colleagues at Anthemus are focused is if we let it happen again when we're starting new companies. So shame on all of us if we are creating the same cultures in companies that are fit for purpose for a very different world. Startups typically begin with one person, um, sometimes two or three, but it's not difficult to establish a company's culture and what their priorities are and how they'll build and grow their team, you know, you don't you only have to look further than those founders to figure that out. And so if we're backing and, and investing in companies where founders aren't prioritizing the, the building of diverse and divergent thinking teams as part of their core business principles, then then shame on all of us. And you've been pretty vocal about the fact that many startups are continuing with some of the old school tradition mm-hmm. of all male culture and advocating for change. So are they listening? I think that I think they're listening. I think I think the conversation, you know, the last year has been really helpful in, for all of us to sort of do a bit of navel gazing and appreciate that maybe things aren't working the way we would like them to work. And maybe we aren't quite building companies that will be resilient and adaptable in an environment where our customer base and our employee base look very different than they have in the last hundred years. The challenge, though, is that you know we, when we started this conversation, we talked about being in your comfort zone. All of us, myself included, and my colleagues at Anthropus included, can go to a comfort zone really easily when things get tough, and they do get tough in startup world, right? So we, you know, I'll give you an example. We, we as a firm, are about fifty-four people now. We, you know, have not been very prescriptive about our way that we are going to grow, right? We, we have a really great mix of genders and culture, and I think we're sixty percent female right now, and, and in financial services and technology that. That's fantastic, but it's not enough, right? Just having a great group that that reflects a great group of diversity and divergent thinking isn't enough. And even as early as sort of a couple months ago, we were sitting down and thinking about planning for 2018, and we recognized that we had grown from 25 to 50 people without a lot of design, and it happened very quickly. And we were all going into a very narrow-minded sort of alpha version of what we understood, right? So here we are trying to help advise people on how to make new companies for this new digital world of financial services, and we were. We're falling into the same traps that our predecessors had and that almost any company that sort of has to scale does, right? We were putting more procedures into place. We were putting more hierarchy into place. We were kind of getting a little bit more fiefdom-oriented in a way that just didn't feel authentic to us, and we stopped. And we, we took a look at where we were, and we said, wait a minute, guys, this isn't us. This isn't what we want to do. We have to be in a position where we're going to you know eat our own dog food, so to speak, and we need to fix this. And, and the good news is we're going on the same journey as a lot of the companies we're advising are going on because we too are growing and we too started as a startup. Yes, it's hard. And yes, it's it's certainly not natural to get out of your comfort zone. But if you can take a minute, pause and use the thinking that have, that have gotten us to this point to then determine where you go next. And, and I think that's really important. What's a mistake you've seen women make when they ask for funding for their company? You know, I think a lot of it has less to do with the words that come out of one's mouth, but the confidence with which they walk into that room. This is a really tough one because it is very, it, it's, it, you know, it's, a, it's very subtle. There's a certain sense of entitlement that comes from, and, and I don't want to be overly stereotypical gender over gender, but in my experience, which has been seeing pitches from significant number of companies, there's, a, there's an unapologeticness that, that comes from a sort of male founder who feels very confidently that he belongs in that room. And I think that in some ways, because so many female founders have not been invited into the room or have had to fight their way into the room, that when they get there sometimes, their first step is to sort of apologize for being there. And that is understandable, but not worth any of our time. You know, I think we have to stop apologizing and we have to appreciate that if we have a great idea and a good business and a good way forward, then we should own it and we should ask for what we need 
and we shouldn't stop until we get it. How come apologizing is a turnoff? It changes the tone of the meeting, right? So if you, you, you put the power into the position of the of the person who has the, the money, right? And and I think that's one of the challenges with everything in financial services and even in, in tech is that the, the power automatically sits with the person that has the money. But there are enough great companies and quite frankly, not that many great entrepreneurs out there. So I think it's about, you know, if you are a strong entrepreneur and you have confidence that you can pull this off, then you should lead with that. And, and most of the early stage investors are ourselves included, are looking at people first, right? So yes, we want the market to, to be a valuable market, and we need to know that it's addressable. And yes, the product has to have some relevance. But in the early stages, it's the people first, because if we get that wrong, then we get everything wrong. You can change product 15 times till Tuesday. You can augment or, or, or shrink markets appropriately for where the, where the business is, but you can never change the people. And so if you feel you've got an idea that's worth funding, and you feel you've got a plan that is worth backing, then you should walk in and own that and, and go at it and go after it. In addition to being a VC, you're also involved in the media industry. And so I'm wondering, did you run into any opposition when mm-hmm. you started working in another field? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. It's interesting that I've gone, uh, my entire career has basically been, which environments have the least people like me in them? And let me just keep, you know, pushing through there. I started a media company called Archer Gray, and, and we're a production and, and finance shop um, for feature films, television, and theater projects. Part of the reason and motivation for starting it was simply because it was an unknown to me, you know, and this idea that I was getting too comfortable in the world that I knew and wanted to branch out into one that I didn't. And so I went in deliberately on the creative production side first before I looked at making investments in media companies or making any big investments in in, in production finance, in large part because I felt that that was where I didn't have any credibility. I also wanted to learn to see if I was any good at it. The biggest challenge really was recognizing, again, how much importance the financing piece plays in it and and how important it is to not only appreciate that, but I think as a, a creative producer, to look at it more as a partnership. And I think the tendency is it's a bit of an us versus them. And, and I think that, you know, when it comes to getting stuff done in Hollywood, you have to appreciate that it's going to take both, right? It takes financial acumen and business sensibility combined with unbelievable ability to tell story and craft story and, and put teams together. I guess I underestimated how similar they would be, in fact. So I think it was less shocking in that sense that, that it was different, but more that it was the same, right? When you're, when you're funding entrepreneurs or funding filmmakers, to help them put their vision together, surrounding them with the budget, the team, the plan to help them realize their dreams. It's a very similar experience. You've said women shouldn't limit themselves to a single career. What do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, I think it starts with how we educate our children. You know, I think we can all think back to that moment where we started to, you know, somebody asked you the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you feel this instantaneous need at six, seven, eight, nine, ten to make a choice and how those choices then, depending on who's in your life, could define everything you do after that. And I think that's really dangerous. And, and in the world that we live in now that is so fluid and, and ever-changing, you know, what we plan for five years ago is probably not going to exist five years from now. And so I think we need to be very conscious that having an open mind and, and recognizing that opportunity could come in, in all sorts of packages is hugely useful to sort of how we think about how we should spend our time. You know, there's, a, I think, a phrase about sort of if you want something done, give it to a busy woman. There's a tendency, uh, certainly for me and, and anyone in, in my set, to sort of appreciate that if you've got lots of walls, balls in the air, you're way more likely to be able to sort of you know accomplish what you need to accomplish because you have to juggle so much. And we're very used to juggling. I certainly am used to juggling. So it wasn't that hard to imagine taking on a bit more than, than perhaps the uh, average Joe. How do you know when to invest or invest more money in a company or walk away? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it comes if it starts with the people, it sort of comes back to the people. So when we make our early stage investments, um, both on the media side or on the uh, finance side, we do so recognizing that we're backing a team. There are some easy ways to know you've gotten it wrong, right? If that team starts to fall apart, if you start to see something different than you saw on the initial pitch or in the initial days, you've got to really think about whether or not it's worth doubling down. Because if the team is a problem, there's not much they're going to be able to fix. And so that's a good space where where you can kind of appreciate, okay, you know, we're in for this much. We better figure out how do we fix this and how much control do we have to be able to try to fix this. And sometimes it's as simple as is finding a way to support the founder with a new hire. You know, maybe they just were in over their head on something they thought they had more bandwidth for or more understanding of and they needed needed a partner. So we're really good at trying to put people together that need each other when they when they need each other. Some of it is instinctual too, right? You've got to take a look at all of the data that, that comes in and appreciate where the market's going. You know, maybe you've gotten somewhere too late. It's sort of easier to, to recognize that you've made a bet and um, the market's moved underneath you or underneath the company and the team could be fantastic. Everything they've done could be great. They could just be too far behind. And that's where you sort of, you play the, the the numbers against that gut instinct to figure out, okay, can we catch up by throwing more money at this? Or is it just going to be, you know, a, a, a no-win game? But it's a combination of looking at the data and, and testing your gut. You make deals for a living. What's the best negotiation advice you can give to women? I just think you have to be you have to be, I'm a big fan of transparency and authenticity in the deal-making process. You know, I think it was in the art of the deal, right, that you, you kind of look at this this idea that if you start from point A and you want to get to point G and then they're starting at point Z, you've got to kind of play all these games in between to just get to a place that is compromise. And, and in my mind, you know, compromise doesn't always work for everybody. I like to kind of just say it straight and sort of say, look, this is where we're trying to get to. I'm being transparent with you. This is not about, you know, here's what I'm willing to give. Here's what I'm willing to take. But I'm not going to pretend we're over here and then try to get to some other place. So I think being direct and being transparent and being authentic in your, your deal making is hugely important. And I think asking for what you want as opposed to just assuming that people are going to read your mind. Some women aren't so excited about investing their personal money, not so interested in markets and the such. How do you think we can get women more interested? I think it really helps to invest in a business or a thing that you understand. You know, I think there's a lot of exuberance around stuff that gets buzzy or it's getting a lot of attention, but there are very few people that I think jump on a bandwagon that's already been, you know, if you're reading about it in the paper or, or worse, if your grandmother is investing in it, then it's probably not a huge amount of upside left for you. I think you should you should understand the market that you're investing in and you should kind of need to have a little bit of love and passion for it. I think that's true of, of almost anything that you spend any time, whether it's investing money or investing time. I had a partner that, that once said, and I think this is a great way of looking at it, that, that whatever you're investing your time or money in has to be something that if no one else loves it, you're still going to be okay holding on to it because there will be hard times and there will be down markets and, and you have to sort of appreciate that you might get caught in them. And you know if you're investing long term in something that you're passionate about and that you are excited about and that you fundamentally understand, then you probably are going to make money. Do you invest in Bitcoin? <laughs> I do not. What would you say? Is there a reason? <laughs> it's a great question. Um, my husband and I have this conversation right now, probably on a daily basis. Just, you know, I think as market professionals, I just feel that. And, and by the way, do I think that I will have not, I will have lost an opportunity. Would there have been an opportunity for me to make money in Bitcoin as an individual? Absolutely. Certainly, I've been watching this market for several years. But I think I have a personal bias against something that is operating outside of the market structure and the market regulatory framework that I fully understand. And not to say that there is an opportunity there, but I think it's a, it's a risky opportunity and one that I think will be solved for or at least 
discussed in 2018. I think it's going to be a big trend. And I think just personally, I you know, there's some stuff around the Bitcoin space that feels very ominous to me. And I just don't want to participate in that. Ominous meaning? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, look, we've all, you know, we've all heard the horror stories, but there's, you know, there's some darkness in that world. And um, I don't personally, life is too short to fund somebody else's darkness. Time now for your secrets. My name is Amy Noyakis, founder and president of the Anthemus Group, and my money secret is be authentic. Be sure to check back for future episodes featuring women leaders and their success stories. Subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite audio provider. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening. What's your secret? Let us know. Write podcasts at DowJones.com. Or on Twitter, use hashtag Secrets of Wealthy Women.